It's March the 4th, Leighton, your birthday, but it was 1857. President James Buchanan was rejoicing over the fact that America was prospering more than she had ever prospered as a nation. But he was concerned. He said, we are turning more to finance and prosperity than we are to benevolence and service. Well, that was the spring of 1857, but in the fall something terrible happened to our economy and to our finances. It's known as the Great Bank Panic or the bank crash of 1857, overspeculation, a weak currency, overextended railroads. Well, it all kind of amalgamated, came together, and our economy, and nascent and as new as it was, it began to teeter, and eventually it, it even collapsed. Now, when that happens, things start happening in the spiritual world. And so people began to pray. The revival of 1858, many people believe, was precipitated by the bank panic crash of 1857. God touched a young man, a layman, a businessman, in the city of New York, and it put it on his heart to be a man of prayer. I mentioned to you last week the revival of 1858 began in the heart of Jeremiah Lanfear, and Jeremiah called his friends together in New York City and said, why don't you meet me at noon? Two or three guys showed up the first week. Within a few weeks, 50,000 businessmen in New York, finance, commerce, industry, they came together and they prayed. I also shared with you last week that 10% of the nation was converted to Christ. We may be facing some tragedy. In fact, many people believe that we're in store for some great trials and tragedies in the United States, whether it's Ebola, whether it's ISIS, whether it's some other crisis that we don't know about on the horizon. And yet if it comes, we might find within that great calamity, there may be a mighty movement of God. In 1858, there was a young boy, well, a young man, and his life was influenced greatly through this revival. His name was Dwight Lyman or Lyman Moody. And D.L. Moody became a powerful spokesman for God, a powerful evangelist, and many people were converted to Christ. If you can imagine the Billy Graham of the 19th century, that was D.L. Moody. He was sitting in a service, probably not much unlike this one, and the preacher preached these simple words, God is, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man who's absolutely unequivocally sold out to Him. And D.L. Moody said, God. I want to be that man. And he was. A lady came up to D.L. Moody one time, and she was, you know, she's kind of upset. She was upset about D.L. Moody. She went up to him. She approached him. She confronted him. She said, I don't think I like the way you do evangelism. And he said, well, ma'am, I'm, uh, I'm sorry to hear you, you say that. Well, how, how do you do evangelism? And maybe I can learn from you. She says, well, I don't do it at all. Well, he, he said, well, I like the way I'm doing it more than the way you're not doing it. D.L. Moody was a powerful man of God. Who knows, maybe these 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be D.L. Moody's, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and Billy Graham all combined to be a mighty force for God, a great revival in the Great Tribulation. That's our title of the message today. And if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading out of the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, a book about the future. Yes, some about the past, but I believe it has more to do with our future. And I'm going to read for you Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. 
and I hope you'll follow along with me. If not, you can look behind me on the screen. The Bible says, after these things. Now, these things refer to the first six seals, judgments, but also and specifically it refers to the sealing of the 144,000, those who have been set apart, marked by God on their foreheads to be set apart, I believe, to be great evangelists, to be great witnesses. Now, you got to remember this is right in the heart of what is coming, what is known as the Great Tribulation. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that Jesus, He actually coined this phrase. He said in Matthew 24, there is coming a day unlike any other day on the planet Earth. It will be a day of great travail. It will be a great day of trial and tribulation. And it will be so enormous and so immense in its capacity. And John has a vision of this great tribulation, and he says right here in the middle of it, after these things I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude which no one could number, of all ethnos. You ever heard this word ethnic or ethnicity? It's where we get that word, all nations. All phylon, the phyle, the description, the tribes, the laos. You heard this word laity, it's where we get the word people. Laos means laity, means people. And all glosson, all the tongues. This was a great multitude of people, and they were standing before the throne. They stood before the Lamb clothed in white robes, and they had palm branches in their hands, and they cried out. A better translation is present tense. And they kept crying out continuously with a mega a loud, phony voice, and they said, salvation. That's what they said. That was on their lips. The first thing that came to their mind, if they were going to give praise to God in heaven above, they were going to be grateful to God that they had been saved. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, that would be the twenty-four elders representing redeemed humanity, and the four living creatures, ominous, awesome creatures of God, created especially by God for worship and for judgment. And they all, all of these heavenly occupants, they bowed down on their faces, and they said to God, Amen! Amen. You know, it's okay to say amen in heaven. If they can, and on earth, if they can say it in heaven, you can say it on earth. Amen. amen. Thank you. Amen, they said. And then they go through what we've already preached through in Revelation chapter 5, where it says, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders looked at John and said, who are these people arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And John said, there, there are times it's okay to laugh when you read the Bible. This is one of those times. John is awestruck. He sees a vision of great travail and tribulation, and yet in the middle of the hell on earth, he looks in heaven, and they're having a, just, a, just a worship. They're having this awesome time in heaven. And he looks at John, he goes, John, do you know who those people are? And this is a Greek idiom when John says, you know, you know, you know, like I haven't a clue, but I bet you know, oida, no. Not gnosko, no. Not that I've come to understand and know, but I, I know completely and fully. You know, sir. And he basically said, you're right, I do know. Let me tell you who these people are. 
These are the ones who have come out of, to use the words of Jesus, the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes, and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Terry, for singing those songs about the cross, about the blood. Yes, we have a bloody religion. We have a Savior who died on a cross. He shed His blood for the propitiation, for the appeasement of the wrath of God, and for the forgiveness of sin of mankind. And all we have to do is believe, and all we have to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry, and I I confess You as my King. And when we do that, we also, glory to God, receive a white robe, and we go to heaven with them. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will skenao with them. He will dwell with them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. Oh, Great Hills Baptist Church, if there is a word of comfort, If there is a word of encouragement, if there is a word of hope in the entire apocalypse, it is verse 17. There is coming a day when Almighty God will wipe away every single tear from every eye. We become heavenly occupants. On the cross, at the cross. Today I want to share just a a few words with you from this text. We're going to talk a few minutes about the praise of heaven. We're going to look at some of these heavenly occupants, how they got there, why are they there. Next we're going to look at persecution, because persecution plays a vital part of how those people got to where they are, how they came out of the great tribulation during this great revival, and they ascended to heaven with their white robes now and their palm branches singing praise to God. So we go from praise to persecution, and then finally, you notice in the latter part of this pericope, the latter part of this narrative, there are multiple promises. And so I just gave you the outline. If you want to jot those names down, you, you'll have a, a, an outline. You'll have praise, number one. You have persecution, number two. And number three, you should have the word promises, plural, promises. So let's begin. Let's do an exposition of this text and walk through beginning in verse 9, and we'll go somewhat quickly because I've taken a lot of time in the public reading of God's Word, so I'm going to kind of walk through my notes, and I'm going to hit the highlights for you today. First of all, praise. Who are these people? These are people that have come out of the great tribulation, and they said no to the Antichrist. They said, we do not want the mark of the beast. We don't want to have anything to do with you. We know who you are. We know who you're from. And so the mark of the beast they don't have, and so they are persecuted. They are ostracized. They can't buy any food. They don't have any shelter. They are on the run. They are eventually slaughtered and martyred. But in the midst of that, they lose their earthly life, but they gain heaven above. And there they are in the heavens. And it says three times in our text that they had a white robe. They're all wearing white robes, which signifies, you may want to jot this down in your notes, whenever you see white robes, think of the words virtue and victory. Uh, Jesus Christ has given them cleansing. He has washed them. They are clean, and they are virtuous people now. They have victory. Also, it says they have palm branches. 
So to have palm branches in heaven, and maybe some trees in heaven, maybe some amazing things in heaven, and, and they're all given these palm branches. These, in John chapter 12, verse 13, we see one of the times of palm branches where it says, the next day a great multitude, they came to the feast, they heard that Jesus was coming, and they took branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet Him, and they cried out, very interesting to me, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means, oh, save God. So you've got palm branches, and you've got this exaltation, you've got this praise reverberating here on earth as they're lifting up the Messiah, Jesus, and then you have a picture of this again in heaven above. You have palm branches, and you have people rejoicing over salvation. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So here you have these who have been redeemed, and then these other occupants, they join in on the praise, and they are the 24 elders, and they are these four ominous living beasts, and then you have uh, the, the redeemed of, of mankind who are already in heaven, and they begin to shout, and they begin to praise the Lord because of the salvation that has been granted to those, what we could call them as tribulation martyrs. You say, well, Brother Danny, heaven looks amazing. God is there on His throne. Jesus Christ is the Lamb, the Holy Spirit of God. They are there. It's an awesome time of, of jubilation and, and praise. Do you think, Brother Danny, that it was worth it? Do you think dying for Christ on earth was worth it to be with Christ in heaven? I guarantee you. Inexorably, I would say, yes, a resounding yes. Whatever sacrifice, whatever tear, whatever pain, whatever travail, whatever difficulty you may encounter as a follower of Jesus Christ here on this earth, it pales into comparison to that great day. Glory to God, we will see Him face to face. We will be with Him. We will have a white robe, we will have palm branches, and we will shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what is the opposite of that? It's hell. You say, really? Do you really believe there's a hell? Just as I believe there's a heaven, I believe there's a hell. Who goes to hell? Those who don't know Jesus. Those who reject Jesus. Those who follow the Antichrist. And by the way, the spirit of the Antichrist is in this earth today. And that spirit of deception that spirit of immorality, that spirit which sucks us in and draws all of us to worship and gravel at it and fall for it, leads to hell. You know, in the midst of this past year, it has been one intense year, I have to confess. As your pastor, I've never, I've never experienced a year quite like this as far as research and meetings and details and and trying my best to get my arms and hands around what God has done, what God is doing, and what I believe God wants to do with this church. And in this process, we have met with so many people, and one of the things, and Andy will probably share this again tonight, but he says, you know, guys, there is a way we can fill up every pew at Great Hills Baptist Church. He said, I know how to do it. He said, if Brother Danny would just quit preaching so hard and quit preaching all the Bible and quit preaching especially on hell, then I am convinced that this place would be jam-packed with people. Listen, they do it in Houston, not to call any names, and 
I don't look like that, by the way. I, I think that, that has a lot to do with it in America, because it's how you look. Now, my wife is way prettier than his wife, but anyhow. Um, but Andy Spencer, did, Andy, am I not getting this right? We could do that, but we will never do that, he said. We will never do that. Never compromise on the gospel. Never quit preaching about hell, because it is true. It is true. It, it made me think of Charles Darwin. He called hell the damnable doctrine. He said, hell cannot exist. He's the author of The Origin of Species, by the way. I don't know if you know who Charles Darwin is, Darwinian evolution. He said, hell, I know it could not exist because, here's why, my uncle and many other people in my family said no to Jesus Christ. And since they said no to Jesus, the Bible says they will go to hell. Hell cannot exist because if it exists, my family would be there. Therefore, follow this syllogism, it cannot exist. It's kind of like a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a hurricane coming, and buddy, there's a coming. And it may be Rita, it may be um, Senior, no, what's the big one? Fran. But you say, no, it's not. There's no hurricane on the horizon. I don't care if the wind is blowing. I don't care if it looks ominous. It cannot come because if it were to come, it might sweep into the great state of Texas, and it might blow over some of my trees, and it might cause some harm to me. So therefore, since I don't like it, it does not exist. Scores of people believe this. They believe because something is painful and difficult, it cannot exist. And I'm telling you, it exists. Hell is real, but more importantly, glory to God, heaven is real. Jesus is there, and He wipes away every tear, every pain, every sorrow, no Alzheimer's, glory to God, no Ebola, no heart attacks, no disease, no pain. We are with Him in heaven, and we give Him praise. But how do we get there? Number two, we all got to be persecuted. Some will be ultimately persecuted. You say, Brother Daniel, did you say all will be persecuted? Read 2 Timothy. I'm sorry I can't remember the verse, but I can quote it. Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay? So they are there, and they are being, or they have been, persecuted. I talked to you about the Greek idiom. You know we've talked about that. We talked about who these people are. They have come out of the Great Tribulation. That's what the elder said. The elder said, John, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. If this is the same tribulation that Jesus had in mind in Matthew 24, then it's the great one. It's the big one, okay? But then, here it is. These are they whose robes have been dipped in blood. I don't have many original thoughts, but God gave me this word. The blood of Jesus is the divine detergent that washes us clean. A robe. We think of a robe, we think it's smudged and dirty and browned and stained. How do you make that robe clean? It has to have an outside agency whereby it is cleansed. And that outside agency that divine detergent, if you will, is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on a cross so that we could be forgiven. What could ever wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood 
of Jesus. What could make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know but the blood of Jesus. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains at the cross, at the cross where love ran red. So verse 15 says, therefore, in light of Jesus Christ dying, saving them, therefore, verse 15, a good translation of the, of the prefix there or the, or the early word there would be because of or for this reason. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve God day and night. And, and guys, this is what's fascinating to me about this verse. In heaven, I don't know what all we're going to do. We're going to praise God. We're going to worship God. We're going to save. I don't know. Maybe we'll hop around different galaxies. I, I don't know. I just know it's going to be amazing. But there is one thing that is a predominant feature of heaven. God is there. We, we are worshiping Him, and there is a lot of singing. There's a lot of praising. There's a lot of palm branches raised. There's a lot of shouting. There's a lot of falling down and amen. Listen, guys, there's a lot of worship in heaven. And I think the best thing we can do to get ready for heaven is to worship God here on earth. I mean, you think about it. And, and the people that tell me, well, I'm not going to your church. I'm not going to anybody's church. Well, aren't you going to go get in a house church or be with a few people and just get together, you know, and worship God? No, I don't need that. And I think, if you don't enjoy this here on earth, what makes you think you're going to enjoy it in heaven? You say, well, Brother Danny, I'm here. I am enjoying it. Amen. I don't complain a bit. This is awesome, and I'm just happy to be here. That's the way I feel. It's just awesome, and I'm happy to be here because this is a prelude. This is a warm-up to what we get to do for eternity. So we go from praise to persecution. And then finally, we're going, we're going to look at these promises. And as I look at these promises with you, I will help explain a little bit more about the persecution. So the promises, verses 15 through 17, let us notice these. There are five of these, okay? Number one, God dwells with us. Do mm, mm -mm. you see it? Verse 15, and he who sits on the throne will skenao among them. That's, John's the only person who uses this Greek word. I know John wrote a lot, but he's the only one who uses skenao. And let me tell you another place where he used it is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and skenao. It dwelt with us. And we beheld his glory, Jesus Christ, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Listen to this. Full of grace and truth. Listen, let me, let me tell you what heaven is. Heaven, heaven, heaven is being with God. That's what heaven is all about. It's being in the very presence of our Creator, who created us, who redeemed us, who, who loved us with an everlasting love. We are with Him. And listen to this. He's not going anywhere, and we're not going anywhere. We are in His presence, and God dwells with us. The word literally means to settle down or to camp out as if you were in a tent. I love that. God's presence remains. In the Old Testament, it wasn't always like that. In the Old Testament, you remember with me the Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and that 
that Shekinah thick cloud of presence would, would just engulf the Holy of Holies above the, the chair of the mercy seat. And when the Israelites would pick up their tabernacle, they would go forward, that cloud would, would go with them and it would settle. And whenever it settled, they would camp out. And whenever that glory cloud would move on, they would move on. It was the pillar of fire at night, it was the cloud by day in the temple. Oh, I was reading it just this morning in Second First Chronicles. It says that, and, and the priests they they couldn't even continue ministering because at the temple, at the at the place of God, the glory of God, He just shone so brightly that they just couldn't they just couldn't hardly move forward. Don't you long for that? I long for that here. I long for that at Great Hills Baptist Church. They tell me it used to be that way. I want it to be that way. I want it to be where there's the presence, the palpable, unmistakable presence of a holy God. And He is so thick, so conspicuous, so palpable that we come into this place and we almost want to fall on our knees and worship because Almighty God is at Great Hills again. God is here. He rules. He reigns. And we worship, and men, we sing, and we raise our hands, and we listen to the Word of God. We give, we serve, we do all those things because God is dwelling with us. He, he's dwelling with us here just a taste of how He will dwell with us forever in heaven above. Now, now let me walk through the next few of these really quickly. Number two, verse 16 says, God's people will not suffer any hunger or thirst. Now listen, if you're here after the rapture, you're going to be in big trouble. If you say yes to Jesus at that point, you're going, you're going to not receive the mark of the beast, the 666, however that's configured, we're going to study it later. And you're going to get saved, and you're going to give your life to Christ, and you're going to realize, well, I should have done this already before. You're going to be killed, probably. Before you die, though, you're probably going to, you're going to be very hungry. Because later on in Revelation it says you can't buy any food because you don't have the mark. You haven't given allegiance to the Antichrist of Satan. But in heaven that's all reversed. There is no hunger. Do you see it in verse 16? There is no thirst. Number three, you're protected from the sun and heat. One of the results of living a life of a fugitive. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this to scare you. I'm just trying to tell you there's coming a day you don't want to be here. And there is an escape clause. There is a route. You know, I watched that movie Revolution before it just got weird on me. But the, 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 the weird, not Doug, he was not weird at all. That was a great role he had in Revolution. But it just kind of got, the plot got a little bit twisted and weird on me. But it, it touched in on the Great Tribulation a little bit. It showed you what it was like to be hungry. It showed you what it was like to have no electricity. It showed you what it was like to have no shelter. So fascinating to me. The more I see, I just see the signs of the times. And it's like God is even shouting through atheistic, humanistic, secular creators to point to an ultimate truth. So you can't find any shelter. You, you, you really can't live. You can't exist. You die. And heaven is populated by those who come out of the great tribulation. Number four, the Lamb is there. The Lord Jesus leads the citizens of the heaven to the fountains of water. L listen to this. Their physical and spiritual thirst will forever be slated and satisfied. Can I say that again? Their spiritual 
and physical thirsts, plural, will forever be slated and satisfied. And finally, number five, my favorite one, God wipes away every tear. There will be crying. There will be suffering. There will be anguish and pain. There will be martyrdom. But when you close your eyes and you open them in the presence of the King, the Bible says in Revelation 21, 4, listen to this, there will be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for all of those things are former things. They have passed away. So those are the promises. And the promises, I believe, given to the tribulation martyrs are also promises that are given to all believers. We will never hunger. We will never thirst. We will never be aliens looking for residence. We will never, we will never cry. We will never suffer again. I tell you, friend, let me say it again. Somebody needs to hear it. Because some of you are debating in your mind, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? to serve God here and all the things I, I miss out on, I'm going to tell you something, friend. It's way, way, way worth it. It will be worth it all. As I study the book of Revelation, it does a lot to me. It, it motivates me. It causes me to have a deeper compassion for souls. Because if I believe it's true, then, then there's, there's going to come some difficult days. It reminds me of Troy Aikman. There you go. Troy Aikman. That's who it reminds me of. Do y'all know there was a time when the Dallas Cowboys were really good? <laughs> no, I mean, they were really good. In the early 90s, we, we lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I couldn't stand the Cowboys. When I lived in Alabama, man, I loved the Atlanta Falcons and the New, York, and the New Orleans Saints. I loved them Southern teams. But I tell you, I came to Dallas, and they just wore me down. I mean, every article, every bit of sports, finally I became a die-hard Dallas Cowboys fan just in time because, man, they started winning. Boom! Championship one, championship two, championship three. Troy Aitman's last season, he and some of his buddies went to a children's hospital, which is not unusual, and he met a little boy named J.P., and J.P. is dying of cancer. And he says, Mr. Aitman, would you score a touchdown for me? And, and Troy Aitman was kind of surprised. You know, they were in the exhibition season. They were in the preseason, and they had a game coming up in Mexico, and then they were going to play their, their preseason games. And he says, well, I'm sure I'll score a touchdown for you, but he really wasn't thinking about it because he wasn't going to get a whole lot of opportunities to play before this little boy died because the mom pulled him aside and said, listen, he's got days, maybe weeks, but probably days to live. So Troy Aitman went with the team to Mexico. He didn't even get on the field. And if I remember correctly, it's like the last preseason game. And they're in the first uh, quarter, and they're going to play a little bit. And the coach goes to Aikman and says, this is your last drive, and I'm pulling you out to rest you up. And Aikman still had not scored that touchdown. And all he could think about was JP and his mom. True story. He had the football <laughs> on the 15-yard line. And everybody was covered, so he tucked it. And he ran like a wild man. And people thought, this guy's lost his mind. This is a meaningless, remember that word, remember that word. 
This is a meaningless football game, and Troy Aitman's about to get killed. He's playing the Oakland Raiders, and he runs, and they are clobbering him if they can't stop him. And he goes into the end zone, and he goes crazy, and they're like, man, what's going on? There's got to be a story to this. Dallas Press crucified him. They said, have you lost your mind? You're our only hope. What are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? And the mom went to Troy Aikman's side, and she said, let me tell you all something. This was not a meaningless touchdown. There is a boy. He's my boy. He's dying. And Troy Aikman is fulfilling a promise that he would score a touchdown, and he fulfilled his promise. And I thought about that story, and I thought, God, that's the way I want to be. There are people dying going to hell. And they're crying out to me, and they're crying out to Great Hills, and they're like, please don't give up on us. Please score for us. Please tell us the story. I know I've rejected you a hundred times, and I know I've told you I'd come to your church, but I probably never will. But don't, don't give up on me. And that's what Revelation does to me. It gives me this utter compassion and passion for lost people. That's why I try just to talk to everybody. Nearly everybody I meet, I try to tell them about the Lord or about this church. And Revelation kind of motivates me to do that. So I want to close our, our service today. I want, to, I want to go back to something that I said earlier. And I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Everybody has a robe. And we are stained and browned and dirty. And we will wear that robe for eternity. And some will go to hell, and they will trample over every sermon, every song, every drop of blood of Jesus. And they will say, I was determined to get here, and now I'm here. Friend, if that is you, would you exchange your garment today? Would you rip that thing off and say, Lord, I don't want that. I want the robe that you give. It's a robe that is costly. I, I think we need to say that. Heaven is free, but it costs Jesus everything, and it will cost you. You will have to repent. You will have to not go to certain places. You will have to say no to certain temptations. You will have to live a different life. You remember what Jesus said? He said, hey, 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 before you come to me, count the cost. See if you really want to follow me. See if you really want to be a disciple. And then this is what I'm going to encourage you to do. Say yes. Yes, Lord, I am coming because I'm telling you heaven is a whole lot better than hell. Peace is a whole lot better than guilt. Joy is a whole lot better than pain. So I'm inviting you. I am running across the line with the football, with Oakland Raiders on my back, and I'm saying come to Jesus today. When you stand in a moment, when you stand, if you have not already exchanged your garments, why don't you come to the front and say, I'm ready to be saved. Let us talk to you. Let us counsel with you. Let us share Christ with you. Some of you are here today, and you need a church home. Please, you need to be in a place where you're going to be nurtured and cared for. You need to be accountable. You need, to, you need a big vision. You need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. I want you to come and, and be a part of, of Great Hills and enjoy what God has done what God is doing and what God desires here. So without running out the back door, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, okay? And we're going to sing a song of 
praise. We're going to sing a song of welcome. And if nobody comes, we're going to wrap up and we're going to go home. But I plead with you, I've actually given my life for this very moment. That if you're here today and you've never said yes to God, you would say yes now. You would walk down this aisle. You say, well, your brother Daniel, I understand. I'm an adult. I'm a sophisticated education man. I'm an erudite man. And what will people think? Listen, don't worry about that. You come and you receive Christ today. Follow Him. Serve Him. Love Him because He invites you today. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.